Hello, everyone. It's Barbus down there. Uh, my name is Luke Thomas. This is the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat. This is episode 138 on today, this day of our Lord, uh, Wednesday, May 13th, 2015. Thank you for joining me. I very much appreciate it. Uh, today on the live chat, we'll talk about a number of topics. Ronda Rousey was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. That's huge news. Uh, we'll talk about this weekend, Edgar Frankie Edgar, of course, is fighting Uriah Faber. We'll also get to uh, some Bellator 137 on Friday night. Um, Reebok sponsorship program news continues to fall out. There's actually some interesting um, something that happened that no one really noticed, for good reason, of course, uh, which I'll get to later. But um, lots to talk about. And, of course, any question or comment you may have may get addressed. Best place to do that, of course, is going to be on MMAfighting.com, uh, where a post is dedicated around this very video. If you'd give it a thumbs up, that'd be cool. Uh, be sure to share this video with anyone you may know and or love. Share it with someone you hate, too. I don't care, but just share it all the way around. Um, and, of course, any comment on MMA fighting that turns green will get priority, but, of course, not exclusivity. You may follow me on Twitter at Thomas. Email me at Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. And uh, you know how it works. That's about it. So with that in the books, let's get this thing going. Um, today, I don't have a soda. Not that you care. I actually have my coffee. So there you go. All right. Diet soda, of course. I never drink regular stuff. So first question up is, is it me or is the Edgar Faber card this week being very underpromoted? Edgar versus Faber is a big fight between two very established and marketable names on a big card for the UFC's Asian presence. What's the deal? Shouldn't be altogether surprising. And the reason why is I know it's a very sort of Twitter thing to say, what, you surprised, bro? Uh, every idiot who thinks um, their ideas are somehow prescient in all times always asks that kind of question. But the fact of the matter is for this one, there's just a few structural things that are happening here that make promoting it or uh, having it sort of feel buzzworthy just very difficult. Number one, it's on uh, part of it's on Five Pass, although the main card, I believe, is on Fox Sports 1, but it's at 10 a.m. That's problematic, too. It's in another country. It's hard to have the kind of media there bring you back the kind of exposure you're looking for. We certainly live in a globalized age, but it's just not the same thing in terms of getting media exposure. Um, there's that as well. Third, the card is, frankly, for by UFC standards, terrible. Um, it's a lot of local fighters. It's a lot of up-and-coming fighters. There's a couple of exceptions here or there. As we all know, the main event is tremendous, but the card itself is in no way good. So there's that as well. So when you sort of take a card, you put it in a weird time slot, you put it in a very, very far away place relative to where the general or where the, you know, this person I'm sure probably lives, um, it just makes generating enthusiasm very, very difficult. It's just going to be very, very difficult, even if, as we all agree, the the Edgar Faber main event, is, there's a lot to like there, both um, ahead of time and, I suspect, in retrospect as well. Just not right now. It's just hard. You know, and also there's, you know, UFC events every week. Um, you know, I will say Fox Sports 1, I was watching the Barcelona-Bayern Munich game, and during halftime they aired an ad for this card, you know, get up with us at 10 a.m. kind of thing. Um, but, you know, 7 a.m. East Coast start time, that's just going to be tough. That's going to be really, really tough for them. So curious to see why this ended up on Fox Sports 1 and not exclusively Fight Pass, given the weird time. Maybe Fox Sports 1 wanted it that way. Um, 
I haven't seen what the playoff schedule is like for the NBA or the NHL, but I don't think they get either of those on Fox Sports 1. So I'm not entirely certain, uh, I guess, it's better than nothing situation. I'm not sure. It's a complicated question about how things get divvied up in terms of Fight Pass or Fox Sports 1 when it comes to international events, but there we are. The last thing I'd say is for an event like this, even with all those structural challenges, um, you know, UFC is not going to put a ton of money into promoting it, right? There's only a certain amount they're going to make on it, given where it is and where it's airing and what the broadcast situation might be like in, in that part of the world. There's only a limited amount of money they're going to make. Now, maybe a, 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 you know, proportionally a good sum, or I'm not saying the show is going to do no money. I'm just saying just it, with every show, Pacquiao Mayweather notwithstanding, there's probably an upper bound limit on what you want to make, and that would then tailor what kind of PR effort you want to put into it, uh, what kind of media availability is going to be a, as a result, and then how much money you can reasonably spend in in you know getting the word out about it, both from print and earned media. All right. What's your take on the California State Athletic Commission changing up their weight-cutting regulations? Uh, Brett Akimoto reported on this story. Essentially, starting at the amateur level, when a fighter first applies for a license, they're going to measure their body fat and set a lowest possible weight class uh, he can compete at. The fighter can never go below 5% body fat. That is the current standard they're using. Eventually, they would like to work this up into the pros. Um, I don't have a particularly long opinion about it insofar as that it's, it seems interesting. Uh, 5% seems like a pretty reasonable limit. If you're down in the ones and the twos there, you are, you are very close to a, uh, unhealthy level of lacking fat. Um, I, you know, they're going to do it through the camo program there. I don't have a ton to say about it, except, you know, I think it's probably more important to have at the amateur level for their safety. You recall that, you know, I think most of the fighters who ever died in MMA or combat sports generally, at least more recently anyway, have been amateurs. Amateur regulation is really poor. So I think, um, you know, I think, and I'm, I don't know what the full story is on the on the kid out of uh, Rufus Sport who died in the kickboxing match, but it looked like there was some reason to believe or some further questions should be asked about what kind of weight-cutting regimen he had and whether or not that contributed ultimately to his uh, tragic demise. So there's that as well. But here's what I would say about like weight cutting. Look, weight cutting is one of those problems that can affect anyone at any point. You can get sick. Something can happen to you. Like weight cutting is a pervasive problem. Uh, and there are examples of people in title opportunities who have failed to make weight. I think most, um, you know, unfortunately, Travis Luter, Anderson Silva is one of those major examples. Um, but at the end of the day, you don't really see it at the highest level. You know, Jose Aldo obviously struggled with it before the Mark Hunt fight. My point is this, is that I'm not going to tell you that the better the fighter gets. How do I say this exactly? There's no level of fighter that a bad weight cut won't affect. And I'm, and I'm the first person to admit it. You can get a top five guy, they can suffer from it. Top 10 guy, top 15, top five woman. Everyone is susceptible to bad weight cutting. But what I would tell you is the 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 maybe, and I'd like to see data of this effect. My impression is that the higher up the food chain you go, the less of an issue this becomes, and it's not some sort of magical reason why. You guys, as they older, as they age, and they get better, they get better at managing what weight they're going to be at. Um, you know, they're not making necessarily all the drastic cuts. You know, obviously some examples like Kenny Florian, but he made the weight. 
Now it's a drastic weight cut, but he made the weight. But I guess in terms of like failed weight cuts, um, you typically see that at, at, you know, I think less than elite levels, more than you see it at elite levels, but you see it at all levels. I'm the first person to acknowledge it. So I think, you know, you could cut out a lot of these problems that people were having in terms of missing weight um, by eliminating a lot of the guys at the lower end of the food chain. But in terms of managing sort of the negative consequences from it, which I think this is a better issue uh, to deal with rather than promotional consequences as a result of missed weight cuts. Um, uh, oh, sorry, someone put a comment. It changed me all thing. I think it's good for amateurs to have their thing regulated. I think it's good for low-level pros if they can make it that way. I'm not sure it's absolutely so necessary at the pro level. Someone says, Luke, literally nobody in the world is at 1% to 2% body fat. I doubt even many fighters were below 5%. That's an insane amount of low body fat. I agree. Do you ever see uh, who did James Irvin fight where he looked like Skeletor, man? Uh, I bet he was below 5% for that one. I bet it. I bet he was. Uh, people keep asking me if I've circled back with Chael. I have not, but that's been my fault. Um, Cerrone title fight. The chances of Cerrone getting a title shot are very high as of right now. Since watching RDA destroy Pettis, I don't see Cerrone having much success against RDA. Well, he already fought him and lost. Is there a case you could make for Cerrone against Dos Anjos, or will we see another dominating win? No, look, there might be one for Cerrone. I'm not the one who's capable of making it. Um, he already lost to him. Um, he lost in a way that you would expect takedowns and dominant top control. It's just a part of that skill set that Cerrone still lacks and has a good secondary follow up on, but that ultimately um, the secondary skills of uh, Dos Anjos cover. So he has better wrestling and has a great sub defense. He might not be able to pass too much. It's not like he's going to dominate necessarily you know, for three or four rounds from Mount or the back, although he might, I suppose. I mean, I wouldn't rule it out, but um, no, there's no real reason. I mean, look, Cerrone kind of is who he is at this point. He can tactically change things up, and that can make a big impact at the highest level, but, you know, his wrestling defense, while significantly improved, is still, relative to the, his other skills, one of the weaker ones, and it's, you know, something that Dos Anjos has already demonstrated against him can be very effective. Thoughts on the MMA managers meeting soon. In my opinion, it looks like a prelude to a future MMA unionization. If anyone is going to do it, it'll be the managers, thanks to the new Reebok deal, and more specifically, the pay scale. Um, yeah, potentially. First of all, I think it's, um, you know, we'll see if it's too little too late. I don't know that it is, but it's certainly late. That's one thing I would say. The second thing I'd say is... Um, We'll see what they can do, man. You know, uh, it'll be interesting to follow. I'm not really in the business of giving a lot of predictions about this sort of thing. They could go in there and have just chaos on their hands and nothing comes out of it. Do I really think they're going to come out of there with some bold plan? No. Um, there's no reason to believe that they will. They, this, this is the first time they're even getting together. But I would love to be wrong, and I would love to see some kind of uh, action taken not to stick it to UFC, that's not the idea, but to create a more balanced environment, create a handshake so that both parties uh, gain in a way that is you know, mutually beneficial and relatively equal um, or proportional to their contributions to what's happening here. Um, that's all that I'm really asking for. And we'll see if that happens, but 
I'm not, I'm not, you know what, man, people were asking last week, you know, is this what's going to lead to a fighter's union? Is this what's going to lead to a fighter's union? Look, I am not here to talk you out of it. I am not here to say it's not going to happen. I am not Mr. Doom and Gloom. But if we're just speaking realistically, what do the fighters do every time some measure of control is exercised over them by management? They just take it. They just take it. They don't do anything about it uh, or very little. Some might complain on Twitter. Some might complain enough that it gets some measure of an arrangement fixed for them. But these are all things that aren't even close to what they would get if they acted in unison in a real participatory way. They just take it. They got they got a ton of courage inside the cage, and 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 I'm not sure that they use a whole lot of it outside of it. Um, you know, these are incredible guys who are capable of incredible things, and but there's just a level of disorganization and you know um, a lack of harmony and a vision for the future for themselves in a, in a group way that sort of precludes them from acting in concert with one another. And so you get what you get. Like guys, like I don't want to fall on my sword for this career. I still want to see this through, which is a very rational thing to do. And so as a consequence, they don't do anything about it. Um, I'm not sure what managers can really do. Um, Acting in unison. It really depends on how much they want to do or what they think is capable. Um, you know, can they, can they talk all of their clients into acting in unison together? It's a very difficult thing to do. I don't, I don't mean to suggest that, you know, forming an association or forming some kind of union is a, a matter of fact, straightforward exercise. It's a very difficult task. Um, but I think that's why I've got, you know, healthy skepticism about it too. But, you know, look, if it's, if past is prologue, they're just going to take it. They're just going to take it. So, I don't know. Is Steve Miocic a legit threat to Cain Velasquez, or is it just not even close, a legitimate threat? Um, I think he's probably more of a threat than maybe some might give him credit for. But if you're asking me what I favor him or what I think that the odds between the two and a potential fight are close enough for, uh, you know, people to be like, well, it's a bit of a toss-up. No, I don't. I still would view Velasquez as a heavy favorite. I just feel like a little bit quicker, a little bit more of a work rate, a uh, better gas tank. So, you know, you you can look at Miocic, I think, and say, wow, this guy has done enough as a contender to merit a title shot. Um, he's certainly good enough to think that he could surprise you. He has obviously a great chin and a big punching power himself. Um, but it's just not clear that he has all of the requisite things that you would have to, to say, wow, is this the guy? Is this the guy who's going to beat Velasquez? Um, you know, even if you thought he could beat him once, or maybe if he gets, you know, I'm lucky. What do you mean? people say lucky? Um, you know, if he has a fortuitous set of circumstances happen on his behalf, do you think he could beat him nine times out of 10, eight, seven, six times? I don't know that I have a hard time believing. So even if he won, could he win two times in a row? That's hard to do, man. Lightweight division. Since the injuries of Pettis and Habib, who can challenge for title after the excuse me, who can challenge for the title after Cerrone, who is most likely to get it? I see Michael Johnson potentially seeing as Melendez has already fought for recently. Henderson has moved up. Has already been knocked out by RDA. What's your opinion on the division right now? Yeah, I think Michael Johnson's probably. I would agree. 
that's probably the guy who's going to be up there. Let me look at the rankings. I haven't seen them recently. See who's sort of like fishing around in that general territory. Let's see. Lightweight. Yeah, Barboza just, yeah, yeah, certainly. Got to be Michael Johnson, right? Okay, apparently ticket buyers are complaining about the UFC 189 card not having enough big names besides the main and the co-main. That would warrant the current ticket prices for the event. Here's the current official lineup. Jose Aldo, Conor McGregor. I mean, what else do you have to say about that? Robbie Lawler, Rory McDonald. Totally first-rate event, no complaints. Dennis Bermudez, Jeremy Stevens. That's a fun fight. Gunnar Nelson, John Hathaway. That's a step down, but intriguing. Thatch versus Howard. That's another step down, but intriguing. Swick versus Garcia. Um, I like both guys, but not a particularly relevant fight. Cody Garbrandt versus Henry Briones. Uh, Cody Garbrandt is a, is a prospect worth paying attention to. Matt Brown versus Tim Means. Uh, Thomas Almeida versus Brad Pickett. Jake Ellenberger versus Steven Thompson. And this person says, now I get that there isn't a lot of name value on there, but those are some banging fights. Also, let's be honest, UFC 189 is a Conor Aldo show. That's what you're really paying for. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't have a whole lot of complaints about this card. As you mentioned before, Manny Comain, unassailable. Uh, and then I would point to fights like uh, Bermuda Stevens is important. Garbrandt Briones is important. Uh, Brown versus Means as um, still very relevant, especially for Tim Means. Thomas Almeida is always really one to watch, especially against Brad Pickett, who's now back to his natural weight class at Bantamweight. Ellenberger versus Thompson is a hell of a fight because, as you recall, Wonder Boy's been on a tear. Ellenberger seems to be sort of turning things around, maybe kind of, sort of. So, um, very little to complain about of this, of this card. You guys know me. I'm King Complainer. And if I'm telling you UFC 189 in this state is, you know, a, a pretty strong card, you know, uh, I'm not saying that that all automatically declares it as such, but I'm usually a little bit more on the negative end, you know, uh, looking at the larger fan base. All right. Let's sort of take these in a different order. Look, a lot has been made about the officiating in Australia this past weekend regarding the tough loss of Mark Hunt. When will we see the time when corners or referees or doctors take the initiative to stop a fight before a fighter suffers severe damage? In my personal opinion, after the third round, it was pretty obvious to me that Hunt did not have the cardio or explosiveness to somehow turn the tables in the fight, right? But that's not the relevant criteria. I am not a statistician, but the odds of Hunt winning the fight in the championship rounds must have been very close to zero. Thoughts? Okay, there's a lot here going on. First of all, Hunt lacking cardio or explosiveness to turn the tables in a fight is not relevant in deciding whether or not a referee or a doctor or a corner has a... Maybe the corner is different because the corner can have, frankly, their own rules um, or their own reasons and telltale signs. But for a doctor and a referee... That's not what they're looking at. They're looking at, in the case of the referee, whether there's intelligent defense going on, in the case of the doctor, a certain set of injuries that could lead to serious damage. There's no coming back from, uh, has impaired vision, right? You get the idea. Um, so that's where that's the space we have to work at first. Second of all, I don't think it was after the third round. I think it was a minute before the end of the third round. Go back and watch. If you have UFC Fight Pass, go back and watch and, and run it back to about a minute and some change. Leave a few extra seconds on there, three or four or five seconds before, and watch what Stipe Miocic is doing to that guy. 
I mean, there's he's and there's there. Mark Hunt is just laying there. He might have been on his side, which is which is a form of defense, right? Because if you ask yourself, what is the ultimate worst position? It's probably spread out. So what's better than that? Okay, a little bit tucked in, covering up. Okay, well, what's better than that? Roll to a side, kind of covering up. Now, was it covering up great? When you're on your hip, you're mobile. When you're flat on your back, you're, you're, you're a terrible, terrible place to be. So if you're on a hip, that's a little bit of something, but clearly not enough, in my judgment, to constitute intelligent defense, especially when you're not blocking either. And if you're just laying there, that's what is that? Okay. Um, so there's that. Here is the problem that I have found. I don't know what the doctor was looking for when he examined him, I think, after the fourth round. Uh, maybe he examined him after the third. I have to go back and check. But I remember the examination not really blowing me over. You know, I think he was looking to see if Hunt had eyesight, which he, I guess he did. But it just seemed perfunctory. I don't know. Here's the real problem that I found out. So the referee in that bout was John Sharp. John Sharp is a credentialed referee. John Sharp has been refereeing UFC bouts for them since 2010. Um, he was a part of the Ultimate Fighter China. He was a part of the Ultimate Fighter, I think, Tough Smashes. Um, he, ha- he had a good stoppage in the bonner Christoph Soshinsky fight. Okay. So he's done a lot of work. He's done good work. He, I think, refereed the Hioki bout or maybe the Paroche bout that night. I, I got to go back and look. But whatever bout it was, it was a, it was a TKO stoppage bout. Um, he got in there right after the person needed to be. Like, it wasn't a late stoppage there either. It was kind of right on time. Now, it was one of the situations where you knew you had to call it. But, you know, we've seen even credential referees like Josh Rosenthal in the case of Weidman versus Munoz not get that right. So there's a huge body of evidence to suggest that John Sharp is basically a good referee. You look at the fight with Hunt and Miocic and you wonder, what happened? How does a referee so good do so unbelievably poorly? Because then you might say, well, okay, look, here's the problem. You know, Mark Hunt, the uh, sort of New Zealand, Australia, quote-unquote, hometown guy, uh, you know, especially relative to a guy like Miocic, who is, you know, American-Croatian, you know, they're going to root for Hunt, right? So maybe the problem is, okay, the John Sharp being a native Australian, there's a bit of a conflict of interest there. Maybe that's what it was, and maybe that is what it was. But I don't know if that's a solvable problem. Because if you hold a fight in Montreal, you probably want a referee like Yves Levine, who speaks English and French. And if you go down to Brazil, boy, it sure is handy to have the Yamasaki brothers, if for no other reason than they both speak English and Portuguese, right? These are things that you would want when you go to a foreign territory. Now, of course, Australia is an English-speaking territory, so in that sense, it's not as pressing of a need, but I just mean saying, well, we're just going to eliminate sort of the nationalistic responsibility, you could actually damage a fighter that way. Because if you say, well, we're going to have an English-speaking referee cover this Thai fighter and then this German fighter, well, what are you doing? Yes, you're, you're removing that element of potential native bias, but you're then creating other complications in the bout that don't serve fighter interests. So that's a big problem, too. So I don't really know what the answer is here because it seems to me that what we have here is an otherwise 
good, if not great, referee who made a terrible error. So what is the takeaway there? That good referees make big mistakes? Maybe. Maybe the takeaway is good referees still need constant revision of their stoppages as a referee. Maybe the takeaway is that um, you know there should be a much more rigorous relicensing process for referees at the highest level. I, I don't know. I'd be willing to entertain any of these things. But what you can't say is that this guy is a historic, historically problematic referee because he is not. He's not. There are just no facts to make that claim. And that's a problem. It's very easy when you get into these lazy narratives. And maybe, not, maybe they're not all lazy. Maybe sometimes they're right. You get referees like John Shorley. I think John Shorley is a threat to fighters, okay? He's got such a body of work that you're like, wow, this is really bad. But when you get a, one who's good and he just goofs, what do you say then? It's a a very complicated problem because it seems so out of character and you don't have to make much of a non-call for things to go real bad. Now, he made an extendedly long non-call. Okay, so this one is particularly egregious. But um, even if you let let it gone to halfway through the fourth, I'd have been like, my God, what took you so long? The fact they let it go halfway through the fifth is like a borderline unforgivable. All right. Uh, Look, the Reebok deal and violating the UFC's code of conduct. Look, it was unclear to me how the UFC could unilaterally implement the Reebok deal without first obtaining the consent of the fighters. Uh, From what I understand, the UFC is using its code of conduct to get around this. Apparently, the UFC code of conduct prohibits fighters from wearing any gear that would be contrary to the UFC sponsorship policy. Supposedly, the UFC are imposing the Reebok deal on the fighters on this basis. I believe fighters have legal recourse against this. If a fighter signs a contract with the UFC and the fighter relies on the possibility of deriving compensation from external sponsorship deals and the UFC is aware that the fighter is relying on the possibility and subsequently removes the possibility, the fighter should have legal recourse, whether it be through the doctrine of frustration, breach of contract, or some other legal remedy. Luke, can you confirm that the fighter code of conduct is the contractual mechanism that allows the UFC to not have to obtain fighter's consent to push through the Reebok deal. That is my understanding, but it may only be a portion of it. And secondly, have you spoken to any attorneys about the legality of the Reebok deal from a contractual standpoint? No, but I will. I also wonder if there's a provision in their contracts that says sponsorship opportunities will be granted at the sole discretion of the promoter. Maybe there's not, but you wonder if um, there's a tax or some other form. Like if the UFC has already have some kind of contractual leeway to impose a sponsor tax, or to take away a sponsor that could be you know, problematic for the UFC's image or something, there must be some kind of language in the contract that allows that. Perhaps they're banking on that and then in conjunction with the fighter code of conduct. But again, all these things sort of make you wonder, on what planet have you ever seen an independent contractor subsequent to this kind of scrutiny? You know, it seems... But if they don't challenge it in court, and they just continue to take it as they always do, it will be what it is. All right, boxing and MMA... I asked a similar question that was wrecked green, but somehow got skipped over last week. So I'll give it another go. Watching uh, Vasily Lomachenko a few weeks back, that was one the guy who fought first on the Mayweather-Pacquiao uh, undercard, made me realize just how poor the boxing technique in MMA is, and it just looked like the guy was technically and perhaps athletically on another level from MMA fighters. Even the best MMA boxers I've seen look like chumps compared to some of the stuff I saw in the Lomachenko fight. Speed, movement, cutting angles, accuracy. I know you can't use a traditional boxing stance, and there are other mitigating factors, but what do you think is the biggest reason that boxing acumen and MMA has, ostensibly, 
progressed so slowly in comparison to other disciplines. I think a lot of factors are involved here. Number one, the gloves are almost a hindrance to this because poor technique, as long as it even lands on a glancing blow, is so good, so powerful. It's much more offensive sport than it is a defensive sport, where I think that balance is much stronger in boxing. Because even if you land on the chin, it's a heavily boxed or it's a heavily padded fist, and you can get gloves up here that make it so hard to make you know make real impact. Um, so it's it's problematic. It's really problematic um, in that sense. I think another part is Lomachenko. You know, well, also Lomachenko is a bit different, right? Uh, you know, the greatest amateur fighter ever. Okay, so he's gonna have a little bit of difference in terms of his skill level than even other boxers. You know, I wouldn't even call Manny Pacquiao on the same technical level, or at least, you know, isn't quite the te- technician that Lomachenko is, right? Um, he's obviously achieved a lot more on the professional level, but, the you know, there's a certain level of technical specificity that Lomachenko can go to that Pacquiao just doesn't or hasn't. Um, and so there's that. The third thing I'd say is getting good coaches. This is really – it's such an underdeveloped field because they really haven't developed best practices for it yet. So people use striking differently. Some use it not at all. Um, You can get guys who are good boxing coaches, which like the black zillions have done. Um, And, or, you know, Cub Swanson has done. Cub Swanson has like first rate boxing coaches, top of the food chain. And that it's not clear. That's really beneficial. There's such a different rhythm and timing and use of what's available. No one has really, I think, pioneered boxing and MMA. Like, here are the many different uses of it. Um, here's, here are some definite don'ts. There are, we probably have a few of those, but not as many as you would think. And here are some definite do's that carry over. Like, there's things you definitely don't want to do, things you definitely do want to do, and then this vast middle ground where you can pick pieces and implement it to your style of game. Um, and here's how the footwork can be combined or, you know, uh, molded out. I just don't think we have one guy or one team that's really pioneered that. Then, And I don't think the coaches are talking to each other in ways that, where you, you know, you see a lot of the, the wrestling community has uh, had a much more melding effect in terms of wrestling for MMA. And so, um, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I just feel like, you know, you take someone like Lomachenko who specifies in one thing starts at an extremely early age, stays with it for a very long time, stays disciplined about it, and has a particular affinity for craftsmanship, and it can look a certain way. Um, That's going to be harder to achieve as guys start later in their athletic careers. That's going to be harder to achieve if they don't have the proper coaching. Like, I remember uh, I went to a boxing gym for a little while, and I remember that dude had me jab, doing nothing but jab and cross and hook, but mostly just jab. For like six months, just jabbing. Like the jab is hard to learn. You know what I mean? It's super hard to learn. And six months of jujitsu, you can, you know, depending who you are, you can get pretty far. You know, you can, you can, you can learn some things. You can learn a couple good guard passes. Your balance may still be off, and you'll obviously miss a bunch of details and stuff. But six months of jujitsu, you know, you'll definitely beat someone with six days of jujitsu for the most part. So, um, but I felt like six months of, of, of that, and I was like barely better than I was before. It's tough, man. It's really tough. Boxing, those are the kinds of things that take a long time to refine because it's a simple movement, but the simplicity of it, it's like Italian cooking. There's not a lot of ingredients, but, man, the ones you have, they better be perfect. 
<laughs> they better be perfect. And so that's kind of what it's, I feel like boxing is. And then taking something already so difficult to do and then borrowing pieces of it or the essence of it and translating it to something that's frankly a very different sport. You know, boxing and MMA, man, you don't really appreciate how different the two sports are, if not just athletically than culturally, until you attend two different kinds of events. It's a completely different universe of people, and there's very little overlap. If there's a Venn diagram, there is not much where the two are touching. And I think that's much truer for the technique than, than we let ourselves to believe. We, I really do. At least kickboxing has a lot of the same elements because of the wider range of tools you're using. I think the range becomes a little bit more um, le or less of an issue. People don't cut angles as much in kickboxing as they do. Look at the angles Lomachenko was cutting. When was the last time you saw a kickboxing guy, even in glory or a tie bout, do something like that? And, of course, the ties have clinching. And so there's just a lot different. It's just so I, – I think we truly fail to appreciate just how different boxing is for MMA. Technically, athletically, in terms of what the rigors are. Not saying they're better athletes, but it's a different kind of athleticism you need for it. And then culturally, just how distant they are from us. All right, so I'm glad someone finally asked this because I had a disagreement with some folks. What does Ronda Rousey being on the Sports Illustrated cover and being ranked first, uh, being the most dominant athlete, do for her career and her UFC popularity? I would argue it's more of a reflection of it than a new step up. But first of all, let me say a couple things about it. Like, I know some Canadians were like, is this really a big deal? I mean, I, maybe it's not a big deal to you, and I don't think it's going to change the world tomorrow. It's a big deal. It's a super big deal. Sports Illustrated is still very much a prestigious media institution. They still carry a tremendous amount of influence. Um, you know, folks like us don't like to admit it because they don't, and I'd say Sports Illustrated in particular, but, you know, legacy media that started out print and is making sort of the digital evolution. They still don't pay MMA much mind. Um, we don't get a lot of our news from them. We don't get news in the way that they produce it a lot. I think a lot of us get our news in a bit of a different way. But I can tell you, man, they still have a big deal. Guy who did my uh, previous show for Mayweather Pacquiao, Chris Mannix, over at Sports Illustrated, you know. They're still really, really important, and they reach an important sports audience that um, that is you know, valuable to UFC, valuable to MMA, and, and valuable for the general public. They have a huge name value, and being on the cover of Sports Illustrated is very much an honor. And frankly, that she's the first real – MMA fighter to do it. I think Huerta being on there is something of a coincidence if we're just being honest. It was an action shot and the story, I read that story. I have the magazine downstairs. It's about it's about UFC and MMA. It's not about Roger Huerta. Not really. I think he's mentioning it a little bit, but that's it. This is about Ronda Rousey. She's And she posed as a cover model. Like they did, a, they did a photo shoot. They didn't take an action shot cage side, something that was already happening. So she is a pioneer in that way. Uh, and I think she is entirely deserving of all the success she has. I think, um, again, I think it's a reflection of how far she's come. She is obviously a tremendous benefit for mixed martial arts. She's a tremendous benefit, as I mentioned before, because she's going to technically raise the level of the game around her and the women's side of the, of the sport. Um, and, you know, it's just further proof that, like, when as John Jones continues to make unbelievably bad life choices – Ronda Rousey is not. I, I'm not saying that the, you know, Dana White made this, let out this dichotomy. You can take the Rousey path and you can take the Jones path. I think it's oversimplifying it a bit. But what I would say is clearly one person is making the kind of right choices uh, and then one person is not. And 
I don't think Jones was ever going to be a Rousey type. Um, you know, there's a certain novelty, frankly, to having a woman doing what she's doing in, in professional combat of athletics that Jones can never enjoy or any man can really enjoy. And Jones obviously has some other issues that prevent being liked in that way. But in terms of dominance, uh, and we'll get to this discussion here in just a second, you know, John Jones is beating all the right guys. He's doing all the things in the octagon, I think you could say, that would grant him these opportunities. But look how far away he is and look where Ronda Rousey is, you know. Pretty, pretty incredible in the end. Um, so, you know, listen, Ronda Rousey is awesome for MMA. She is awesome for the UFC. I'm thrilled for her success. Uh, I don't know that I like her very much on a personal level, think some, some of the things she said, but that's irrelevant. Who cares? doesn't matter what I do or don't think about her personally. Um, as an athlete, she is tremendous. As a fighter, she is tremendous. And there's just nothing that's really bad about this in any kind of way. And look, I got into a bit of a debate with some people about what was written on the magazine cover about her. And they said that she was the world's most dominant athlete. I find this to be a totally absurd idea. Um, you know, I, I think you should understand that, you know, Ronda Rousey is an elite athlete and an elite technician and a credit to combat athletes everywhere. This is not about an indictment on her. This is about an indictment on like, and people are like, well, they're just trying to sell magazines. I get it. Sell your magazine, you know, and if you believe it, write what you believe. That's all you can really do. But I, I don't find that argument in any way compelling whatsoever. Um, and I was arguing with one of my colleagues from MMA Beat and Sports Illustrated, um, uh, Jeff Wagenheim, and he was, I think, arguing, look, I understand, uh, if I'm getting his argument wrong, I, I hope he corrects me, but my understanding of it was, and I think some people in general were like, well, look, you know, they're saying she's the most dominant, not necessarily the best athlete in the world. If you look at how she's beating her opposition, you know, these combined 96 seconds over the last two or three fights, how do you say that's not the most dominant? Look at the differential um, between them. Uh, wouldn't this, you know, isn't that a greater differential than, than than LeBron over his contemporaries, even as good as that may be? Or I had noted Serena Williams or Jordan Burroughs or, you know, you could, I think Michael Phelps you could name or there's probably a lot of athletes you could name um, um, that are also the sort of like exquisitely dominant types. Um, I, I suppose it depends on your definition of domination. But to me, when your argument is a context-free, I'm just going to measure aggregate distance between two things, you are missing the point of the argument. Dominance is not a substitute for um, the totality of excellence. It is a dramatic component. And when, and when you are making a claim about dominance, you are at heart making a claim about greatness. Now, certainly, Ronda Rousey was great. No one is suggesting otherwise. Epic, epic, great. But when you are making an argument about dominance, and you are therefore making an argument not in totality, but an argument in the vein of greatness, in the vein of accomplishment, to then go out and take a definition of dominance that does not take into account the party's abilities, just their relative separation, that to me is a context-free argument that does not have any relevance for elite pro sports. It does not mean anything to me. Because I am dominant if I go and play dodgeball with a bunch of third graders and I'm taking these balls that I can palm, which they can't, and I'm pegging them all in the face. Um... And you could say, well, look, that's a crazy example. That's not what we're dealing with here. I understand. But I'm just using your definition of dominance and applying it to mine. Because if your argument is just about the distance between them, 
there are lots of scenarios where that works, where you then begin to these, as I'm noting, an absurd territory, an absurd premise, an absurd example, because your absurd definition of dominance allows for it. Here's the fact of the matter. In elite, not even fight sports, in elite sports, dominance is much more narrow because it's so much harder to come by. This is true for any sport. This is true for soccer. This is true for water polo. This is true for even wrestling, um, which is a uh, sport where you can get guys who go on some streaks, you know. Um, This is true for um, anything, uh, boxing, whatever the case may be, you know. the difference between the first and the second one, or the first and second and third, it's very minor. It's very minor. It's just the accumulate, accumulation of minor victories. And I don't mean just outright win this game or win this fight. I mean outright you know, do things better, getting more steals, getting more points, whatever the case may be. The distance between them at the elite level is like this. When you have a cartoonish version of that, where the distance is like that, something's wrong. Now, it could be that Rhonda is this otherworldly creature that we are totally unprepared for, or it could be that she's an elite athlete with elite skills competing against uh, a field that is just generationally behind her, right? Because it's impossible for me to understand how the men's side of the game, which has absorbed dozens of Olympians, dozens of world-class athletes, gold and silver medalists in judo, who were good at submissions, not even just ones who just did the throws, Takimoto, Yoshida, Nastula, all these guys, Oya Ogawa, all these guys were way better in judo, and they got washed in MMA. And they were good athletes, and they could do submissions. And I forget that. You get the wrestlers who come over as well. And obviously the, some of the Olympians, you know, like Kevin Jackson had a bad time, but a lot of them have done very well. My point being is look at how competitive it is at that level where it's much deeper, much talent richer. When a person dominates, it's like that. It's just a series of this. Yeah, you get your Anderson front kicks to the face. Yeah, you get your John Jones standing guillotine chokes. But you, know, you look at the, a lot of the other fights, they have to fight for their lives to get through. That If you're not getting that kind of parody, you're not getting full, thick divisions that tell you the full story. And so to me, just noting aggregate difference means you are abdicating any kind of way to measure greatness. If all you're noting is, look how the distance from me to them, you're not noting what really makes dominance so special. Michael Phelps winning all these medals against elite guys who pushed him to the absolute limit. We've seen that one photo where there was the, 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 him and another guy trying to touch the wall and it was underneath, and he was like just a finger like that. Look how, look how much he was pushed to the edge. And that's in a worldwide sport, you know. That's how far it was. But it's that much he wins by, and then that much he wins by, and then that much he wins by, and then the occasional that one he wins by. All together, what makes up greatness. But Kale Sanderson may have gone undefeated in college, but he got taken down at times. He got pushed to overtime at times. You know, Ronda Rousey's getting out of there in seconds. Okay, well, when you're having that kind of cartoonish outsized domination, it's not Rousey's fault. It's the rest of their fault. And if you're going to sit here and tell me that those that, that the current generation of women is, is on par with the best men's divisions, it's not saying that women can't be or that they won't be. In fact, I frankly think it's inevitable. I think the next generation of them are going to be ballers. I truly believe that. I truly believe that. 
when all the when well, not well, I shouldn't say all when many more elite uh, athletes from the women's side and many more elite technicians come over from the women's side, you're going to see a completely different game, and then we can have a conversation. But we know what dominance in sports looks like, and it's like that. It's like that accumulated over time with rare examples of that and then rare examples of that. If you're not getting that dynamic, you're not getting elite sports. That's just the way the world works. Uh, all right. Someone's asking, I've seen a couple of questions about it. Under the radar, Hung Yu Lim versus Neil Magny. I think this is a solid fight stylistically. Lim is a big bruising welterweight. Oh, hang on one second. Let me uh, let me do something here real quick. Like, Okay, should be good. So folks are asking, uh, Lim is a big bruising welterweight and Magni is a smart technical pressure fighter. Do you think Lim's size, power, and aggressiveness is going to be too much for Magni? Or do you think Magni manages to weather Lim's storm, gas him out, and win a close decision? No. If, if Safadine had that kind of trouble with him, I think Magni's going to get run over. Bello Kirkland, boy, did that live up to the billing. Certainly did. It's a shame it didn't, you know, Pacquiao Mayweather didn't look that way, but um, I'm glad they used the Pacquiao Mayweather fight as the lead into it. It was great to, you know, give something as, maybe it left a sour taste in people's mouth, but it was good as lead-in programming, right? You could at least admit that. The ratings certainly speak to it. And it set up Canelo to have just a fantastic fantastic performance and, you know everyone's saying oh there's going to be who's the next star who's the next star who's the next star look here's a funny thing about it if you live through boxing this was not that long ago but if you live through boxing in 2007 when mayweather fought um oscar de la hoya a lot of the is boxing dead talk was much stronger there was a little bit of it this time but not as much as there was last time and so i think that fact should be noted i think the second fact that should be noted is it's just really ironic that people are like, well, who's the next star on the very week when Kirkland and Canelo have a fight and there's record ratings for it, biggest on HBO since 2006. Now, does this coronate Canelo overnight as the next big thing? No, but he's been trending in that direction. He delivers the kind of fights that I think most people like, the action fights. The fights against Laura, uh, the fight against Laura was not that great, but you know, if you want to blame someone, you'd blame it on Laura. Um and generally speaking, you know, he, he has the ability to capture all the right audiences and has the right look and is totally marketable. So, you know, is he going to be as big as Pacquiao? Is he going to be as big as Mayweather? I don't know. Probably not. I'm perfectly willing to admit that there is probably in boxing a paradigm shift. As these two guys go away, you know, Canelo's probably the top of the list and maybe there's a couple other guys floating in between, but there's not that obvious breakout star. Okay, fine. But I don't view that as like some perpetual inevitability. Like, that's going to be the way it is the rest of boxing's, you know, run as a sport as long as there's an earth. I, you know, I have a hard time believing that. Somebody, because they always kind of do emerge. You know, if someone had told you four years ago there was going to be a monster Irish featherweight star who might be the biggest star in that country and, you know, would get a fight against the greatest Walter, or, uh, featherweight of all time, you'd probably tell them, you know, four or five, how long, how long he's been in the UFC at this point. Uh, you'd probably be like, what are you talking about? Of course, that's not true, but it's true. These guys, they, 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 they it happens. 
it's nothing you can exactly see coming all the time, but when it's there, man, it's there. Will the Reebok deal affect UFC's popularity because of the pay or strengthen them because of the professional look of the company? I don't think it's going to do... I don't think it's going to do either. If you're asking me, and you are. Here's what's probably going to happen, unless something changes, and I'm not... I don't know that it will, but it might. I'm not ruling it out. I suspect after uh, all the complaining that we saw, nothing's going to be done about it. Um, probably. I think some free agents, but not many, will jump to Bellator. Not a lot, but some. Enough to be noticeable. Enough to matter, certainly for Bellator's interest, but not really enough to really hurt the UFC in any kind of measurable way. Um. I don't think it's going to affect their popularity at all UFCs because I don't think this was ever a major, like this did not get reported on in major media at all. This was a very much indigenous media story. So there's that. Um, I don't think it'll boost their popularity because I don't think anyone cares, which is to say one, no one's really paying attention to the story. And number two, like, Having these guys with dynamic fastener on and Hayabusa, it's not a problem. I don't care what anybody tells you. It's not a problem. When was the last time you ever heard an MMA fan be like, God, if they could just get rid of all these sponsors and get a clean professional look. I'd really like MMA more. I really think it could go on TV. They've been on TV for years. Did anyone ever, did any friend at any party ever complain? Maybe a couple might have noticed. But when you put your head on the pillow at night, is this things you think about in the sport? You might think about injuries. You might think about fighters you love. You might think about fighters you hate. You might think about fighters you want to see. You might think about fights you want to attend. You might think about fight parties you want to hold or go to or whatever. Hey, maybe you want to train. Those are the things you think about as a fan, as a consumer. Did, did anyone ever complain about the NASCAR thing? Did anyone ever put it up as a limiting fact? What, what have you not gotten yet? It's on Big Fox. It's on Fox Sports One. They have Dana Center on Sports Center on ESPN. Um, it's on. They have their own subscription online channel. Uh, they've got a you know however many millions of followers on social media. They're worth however many billions of dollars. If the if if having the fighters dressed like NASCAR cars or NASCAR vehicles, whatever, was a problem, hard to find out how. Didn't affect business at all, except for maybe what was lost. So here's where I think it's actually going to happen. They've already come out and said, and maybe they'll change this, but the plan of, as of now is we're going to have our Reebok uniforms, because that's what they are. We're going to put uh, a logo on top of that, maybe two, but certainly another sponsor is going to go on there, and the UFC is going to keep all the money for that. That's what I think this is probably about. Um, this is about them. I, I think the UFC genuinely at their core believes, and with some good reason, as I mentioned on the MMA Beat last week, that they are the ones who are making the sponsorship opportunities possible in the first place, that is therefore uh, uh, should be controlled at their discretion, and they should be the ones to take advantage from it. And rather than collecting money on a sponsor tax, 
there is infinitely more money in being able to put a Sony logo or a Monster Energy logo or a Coca-Cola logo or a Verizon logo on top of a Reebok uniform. But the people who seem to be benefiting from that will be the ones who structure the deals. And as they've already come out and told us, any additional Verizon or Monster or whatever ad uh, a sponsor that goes on top of the Reebok uniform will be collected solely by management. I think this is a way for management to monetize what they believe is a market that they created. That's it. I don't think it's any more complicated than that. And I think I would, I listen, I'll be the first to tell you, I think they have a point. I think they have a point when you take a fighter and he has all these sponsors when he goes to the cage and none when he is not there, that kind of tells you what they're monetizing there. They're monetizing one guy's exposure on the broadcast. I don't think the UFC is wrong to say, guys, we are providing this. I don't think that's crazy at all. However, um, if the fighters were to act in unison, they could say, well, right, but if you don't have any fighters show up for any of your shows, you cease to have a product immediately. Your, your product stops immediately. There is no other product there. It's not like you're also a television production company producing other forms of live content without fighters or something like that, right? Like without the fighters, it stops. So, so that's why I would like to see the two handshake it out and figure out figure it out. But to me, this is probably just about a way for the UFC to say, this is a market we've created. I think they have a very strong argument for it. Um, and because we create this market and we make this market possible, we should be the primary beneficiaries of it. I think that's what it is. I don't, I don't think it's much more complicated than that. Thoughts on the singlet. Uh, good morning, Luke. Do you think the amateur wrestling, at least in the U.S., would ever allow the use of rash guards and fight shorts in lieu of the singlet? So they tried this at uh, one of the past New York events. Like, remember when uh, Joe Warren wrestled Scott Jorgensen? What was that? Uh, uh, grapple at the Garden. Uh, they tried with that with some of these super fights. I thought it looked fine. In the end, again, I don't think singlet's really the issue. You can modernize the look if you want. Um, doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of a difference. I don't, you know, I don't, it's a little outdated, but not, not the worst thing in the world. Um, my wife actually likes singlets because it's easy to put on underneath a gi rather than, you know, uh, sports bra and running shorts and all that kind of thing for women. But, um, but, uh, my wife trains, but, um, no, I don't, I don't really think it's that. I don't think it's great for it. I don't think it's that limiting. I wouldn't be opposed to a change, but in the end, I really wonder like, is this cosmetic fix, you know, that critical to, the sports health or, you know, growth press credential. How easy or hard is it to get press credentials for a big UFC event like UFC 189? And how can you get, how many can you get per outlet? Um, depends on a media availability. So like it made with a Pacquiao it was impossible to get credentials for more than a few people because everybody and their brother wanted one and they had a small amount of space. So there's that. So it's a couple of things. Um, how many you can get per outlet is, you know, a function of how much space they have to give you and how many you're asking. Usually they can accommodate most of your requests for the most part, not all of them probably. Um, not necessarily all that hard to get credentials, but maybe hard to get like, you know, front row seats on them, you know, because it's like a, it's like an orchestra. There's first chair, second chair, third chair, fourth chair, and, and so and so forth. The ones in the first row are the ones the UFC deems to be the most important, and it's second, third, and fourth. Not because the second row may not do good work, but you may have on the front row, like, you know, Washington Post, ESPN, Yahoo, uh, Fox Sports. Second row, you might get your, you know, uh, sometimes MMA fighters on the second row. Sometimes they're on the first row. It all depends. Um, but you get the idea. 
so that's sort of how that works. Um, you know, the audiences they're trying to reach and that's that kind of what kind of content you're producing. That might also be things so like if you come to them as like a B style outlet, not a, but B, but you're producing something that can have like a major profound effect. They might give you some better access. So it's all, it's a function of all those things that work together. Who's going, what are you content are you trying to deliver? What do you need to go as print video deadline? What are you going to go as what's your outlet? Um, you know, obviously you need, you need to be an outlet of some kind of size or, impact or you know relevance for that for it to matter but you get some pretty smaller outlets sometimes some of these events i always tell people though like um you know look you should cover events like ufc 189 and if you get the chance events like mayweather pacquiao and stuff like that but um you you learn a lot covering small events too they're not entirely dissimilar and if you do a bunch of small events you'll be really ready for the big event you'll be you'll know exactly what to do so like go to small events too. Like don't just wait for the big ones. That's dumb. Go go to local events, cover them as media and understand what so you can see what the differences are in the levels, you know. I've covered I've covered some nubs events, but but it was fine. It was it was good. Prep for an interview. Uh, how do you prepare for a live interview like the one you do with Bob Arum? So that's probably not the best example because I didn't prep for that one. I was just waiting in the media room for a luminary to walk through and then pounce on them the second they got in the door, which is what I did. And I'm glad in the case of Bob Arum, because after I was done talking to him, he did a huge scrum with a bunch of media. I just got to him first. So early bird gets the worm, kids. But um, typically, I don't know how much prep you can do. You can read as much on the issue and know as much as you can. Um, know how much time you have to work with. Yeah, so I knew I had roughly 10 minutes to work with Bob, so I was going to ask questions that I felt were most pertinent in that window. Um, and, uh, you know, just know what information you're trying to ask. Don't just walk in there and be like, well, here's our, here's our six or seven questions that folks may want to know. No, what do you want to know? What do you want to know? What are you trying to uncover? I like understanding the nuts and bolts of how fights are made, of how companies work, about big picture issues. That's kind of what I like. I like talking technique a little bit as well. Um, I believe that there's an audience out there for that. Um, but everyone's got their own interview style and their own things that they're looking for. And I'm not here to judge one way or the other. There's lots of people who have different views on the kind of content they're looking for than me who have been infinitely more successful. But that's generally what I look for is who am I talking to? What information are they realistically going to give to me? How much time do I have? Uh, on what medium am I delivering this? And what do I want to know? And then I just go. That's it. Uh, Metamorphs watching. After watching your Monday Morning Analyst, I found myself debating on whether I'd like to see MMA stars versus decorated grapplers and or playing with different weight differentials. I would love to see Barnett versus Cyborg, you mean Cyborg or Brayu, actually happen, but how do you think a match between Barnett and Galvan uh, would go? And whoever wins between Cyborg and Galvan ADCC? Let's start there. Um, you know, it's a huge weight differential. Galvan has done well in absolute competitions, especially with the gi on. Without the gi, I'm not so sure, but I don't think Barnett would sub him, if that's what you're asking. Um, also, which MMA fighter has yet to compete at Metamorris would you most like to see at Metamorris? In a dream world, I would like to see BJ Penn, Kenny Florian, and either Diaz brother, but I doubt they could afford any of them. I bet they could afford the Diaz brothers. Uh, also, Weidman versus Galval rematch would be fun, but the UFC wouldn't allow it as long as Weidman has the title. Yeah, probably not. I'd like to see Rousey in there. 
and frankly, to that point, I'd like to see a bunch of judoka in there. I wouldn't mind seeing, um, I know he's a little bit older now, but Flavio Canto in there. I wouldn't mind seeing, I think, Josh Barnett, when I asked him about it, Satoshi Ishii. I wouldn't mind seeing um, a couple of judo guys go at it, you know, because that way you know they're not going to pull guard, and I want to see what they would be like on the ground. We haven't even done that yet. Because if you put, a, if you put like, a, the Meow brother, Paulo or Joan, up against, you know, some judoka, what are they going to do? Same thing they always do. They're going to sit to guard immediately, De La Hiva, and they're going to barambolo you, and then that's what's going to be that. And I think even the best judoka probably wouldn't have an answer for that, um, just because those guys are – that's just what they do. But you get two judoka, you know, and you say, like, we're going to finish this on the ground. Um, I wonder if they'd be inclined to pull guard. I think it'd be a huge – I think it'd be a huge question mark. Um, and I like the weight differentials. They don't have to be 60 pounds necessarily, but – Look, here's the deal, and I mentioned this on the Monday Morning Analyst. I just don't understand Minamorris' concept. Oh, you know what? We don't like points. Let's get rid of points. Oh, you know what? We don't like some of these IBJJF rules. Let's throw them out. You want to do neck cranks? Do them. You want to do heel hooks? Do them. You want to do? Uh, you want to reap the knee? Reap the knee. We don't care. We, this is about you know finding the best guy. Oh, but by the way, there's a time limit. Like it doesn't work that way. If you're going to eliminate all these other rules, you can't then put this artificial restriction of time on there. That has to be eliminated. And so to me, the best way to do Metamoris would be, you know, I guess you want to have 20-minute matches, fine. Try to find weight differentials or weird matchups between two different kinds of grapplers. Get some Sambo guys in there. I like that they let Barnett wear shoes. I think if one guy wants to wear a gi, he should be able to. I like that as well. Like, you know, Ken Shamrock going in there like a Japanese shoot fighter. And then you have Hoist Gracie in there with a gi on. I like that as well. You know, change it up completely. If two guys want to go in there, no gi, fine. You can do that in, in there as well, or you can get Keenan and Shanji doing the whole gi thing. That's fine too. But get a couple of judoka in there. Get get Cliff Swain in there. You know, do do something. Um, I don't know. I think that'd be a really fun fun way to go about it. Uh, let's see. Um. Would they bring Ronda to do a stadium show in Australia? After doing Brazil, I don't know they would make her miss another payday like that. Let's see. What do you think about uh, Ultimate Fighter? It seems inconceivable to me that a television show in the 21st century, which is on for a whole hour, spends the first 40 minutes building up to a fight that will take place in the last 15 minutes, and then immediately after the fight has ended, the president of the organization who puts on these fights says, well, that fight sucked. Dana has done this for the last three weeks and sporadically through the last five seasons. If the president of the UFC thinks the fights are rubbish, then why the hell do we even put them on television? That's a great question. Having Dana say the fights sucked and the post-fight breakdown, though honest, is literally a slap in the face to everyone who just watched it. I don't know why Fox would, A, splice in Dana's trashing his own product, and B, why they would continue to put a product on television that has had more bad fights than good. Yeah, um... They keep it on television because it does good enough ratings for Fox Sports needs. Although not nearly what it once was, not even a fraction of what it once was. Um, It's good to get the UFC brand consistently on TV all the time like that. But to your point, like the fights are, you know, I mean, he spent an entire season trashing fights, the BJ Penn, Frankie Edgar season. Uh, I haven't watched, and this is not even like, I'm not even trying to do a bit here or like, make a point about, um, oh, I'm so cool because I don't watch 
It's nothing like that. I just can't bring myself to watch. It's recording on my DVR. I swear to God it is. I don't even have anything against it anymore. I used to have something against it. Like I thought, I thought action needed to be taken, but nobody cares what I think. They don't want to change it. They're going to do what they're going to do. And so I'm just resigned to the fact that I, I, since I have no editorial obligation to watch it, there is not a scintilla of interest that I have. And I tried for the first five minutes and it just immediately was like, I've seen this before, I've seen it before. And if these guys can fight then we'll see when, you know, we'll figure that out. We'll figure that out. You know, we don't need the show to tell us they can figure it out. So like as an entertainment product for me, the sponge is out of water. It's just out of water. I don't know how else to put it. Um, but from a business perspective, there are obviously differing opinions about this from, from the fan base, even though there's, the decline is, you know, uh, incontestable. There's still enough there that the parties involved get something from it, even if it's much, much, much less than it ever once was. I think that's the long and short of it is they would take it off if it was like hurting them or burning money, but it's not. It's it's just not. At least not right now. Now, we may get to a territory where they're, you know, they have some difficult questions they have to ask. But that's not where they are now. But you know, but if I don't have an editorial obligation to watch it, I do I have an interest in it? I don't. And and I watched all of the last season. I thought Tough Twenty was great. And I know some of you guys didn't. I'm not here to talk you into it. I'm not here to have a debate about Tough Twenty. I'm just saying I thought that having the women in the house not in of itself was interesting, but that it was many of the that way class's top fighters. I thought the fights were better. Um I thought they were more interesting. And so um, for the novelty of having women, at least for the first time anyway, I mean, the novelty's worn off, but for the first time, and then to see the, you know, the elite, relatively speaking, the elite style of fighting, that I didn't, I didn't have any editorial duties for that either. And I still watched, you know, so take that for what it's worth. Um, let's see. What are your thoughts on Sonnen's thoughts that fighters shouldn't moan about the current Reebok sponsorship because fighters should never have had a lot of sponsors in the first place? Yeah, I mean, you know, trying to take a situation where you're talking about the street, the the relationship that the Screen Actors Guild has with networks and what professional athletes have with their sports organizations, I don't think is a particularly meaningful analogy. So it says at least uh, Dan is being honest, and I think that's true. But you know, there's also just no hiding the fact that that you know, if you look at what Edgar Faber is going to be. And you take that to be the level of UFC product, which I think is the only other product that it's a level of the product that no other organization can match. And then you have this, you're going to get a lot more bad than good. The signal to noise ratio changes, right? So it's not, it's not a coincidence that the fights get worse. They're not going to get better. They may be good enough, but they're not going to get better. Luke, is it safe to say that if Neil Magny had a voice like Connor's, he'd be fighting a top five guy or even for the belt? No, it's not. He is a guy who I think was going to, he was headed headed towards also ran territory. He was going to lose again and get cut. That was, that was the way he was headed. And he has made some improvements to his game. And he has been competitive enough without injury that he has been able to put together a relatively interesting fight streak going on. But he has not shown through dominance against credentialed opposition a level of otherworldly ability that leads you to believe he has what it takes to fight the and beat 
you know, seriously high ranked guys. I think if he can get through Hung Yu Lim, we can have a different conversation about that. Um, and he's certainly done well. And I think what they've also noticed is that he's, wow, he's steadily improved this whole time. But they're, if you're asking, like, you know, name the fight where he had a breakout fight where you're like, wow, okay, we might have a contender on our hands because I can't name it. Maybe, maybe, maybe you think there's one. I don't think there is one. I think he's put together a very commendable, impressive body of work. He is not the same fighter now that he came into. But progress is not the same as crossing certain thresholds thresholds are what matter you know and i don't think we've seen that yet but again look if he goes out there and he just crushes hung you limb okay well now we have a different conversation on our hands so here's to here's to him proving me wrong robert whitaker ko'd brad tavares in impressive fashion in australia tavares was ranked 14th at 185 does whitaker have top five potential um that's a middleweight division i don't know if he's got that kind of potential but again, another guy who caught us all by surprise in terms of his improvement. So I'm going to say anything's possible. I don't see that as likely, but that what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. So we'll see what he does. Thoughts on the Sam Alvey spray tan incident. I'm not sure what the UFC is saying. They didn't know that Alvey had it on him until right before the fight when he had it during the weigh-ins. Also, who do you think wins a matchup between he, him, and uh, Elias Theodoru? Well, they may have thought he was going to have it on the weigh-ins and then washed off before the fight. So that could have been that. Um, I understand why the UFC doesn't want these guys putting spray stuff on their chest or backs. Remember, goldenpalace.com used to be a thing. Guys would get written on their backs. Um, but, uh, you know. I also just don't have much sympathy for the UFC's position when they're taking away sponsors. So, you know, I'm not, I, I understand their argument, but, you know, in the current climate, get money however you can is what I say. Let's see. Can you rank these hypothetical matchups from lowest to highest based on how much pay-per-view sales you think it will make? So, I will go lowest to highest. I will go Pettis Habib, Weidman Cormier, McGregor Aldo, Kane Jones. Um, and then it's a toss-up between Rossi versus Cyborg and, and Silva versus GSP. Uh, maybe Silva versus GSP one or two. I don't know. I, that's a different debate because GSP coming back will be huge. Silva's not what he once was, but still has a huge name. Those two names finally getting together will be massive. But there's not the same amount of hype around it right now. Rossi's star potential is just through the roof. I mean, she's about to be a huge star if she's not one already. Having her fight Cyborg, even you know, yes, you can say, well, do people want to buy the women's fight? People want to buy Ronda Rousey's fights. And against Cyborg, I think that'd be huge. So I'd be willing to entertain an argument for either at that point. Marshall Zelaznik said on the MMA Hour that the UFC is cutting back on overseas shows to create better cards. He said they will do less than they originally planned for this year as well, which means less fight pass events. 
Is this a step in the right direction, or is this a direct result of injuries ruining thin cards? Listen, I don't think that any move the UFC makes in terms of the number of events they do is unrelated to injuries. Has to be, has to be. I think they're really sort of saying it might be a long winter here before we really figure out how to get best practices out in the workspace for these guys until they finally figure out how to train without getting injured all the time. Or maybe this is, you know, maybe we can tamper down a little bit, but, you know, an exceedingly high level of injuries is inevitable because you are wrestling and you are boxing and you are doing jujitsu and you are doing all these things. This is just an unavoidable territory that we're in. Um, so I don't think anything they're doing is unrelated to that. But I also think that, um, you know, how do I say this exactly? They don't need all these fight pass events. I think there's other ways to get value on fight pass events. I think putting Invicta and Chuto Brazil and buying other libraries, not the ones that were necessarily already brought, but presenting it as such um, is a way to sell. Maybe they've seen a decline in sales, or at least a, not a decline, but a plateauing in sales of the fight pass product. And they're going to say, look, it's the thing of the future, but it's not the thing of the present. Let's put all what we can on fight pass to make it still, you know, a, a valuable contribution. But, Let's also make sure the stuff we give our partners at Fox and on pay-per-view the best chance for success. Because you had UFC 187 that was close to perfect. Now, John Jones ruined things, but, um, you know, Habib getting injured is just, you know, it's a dagger, man. It's a total dagger. So I think that there is natural overlap between the idea that um, injuries are affecting cards and that even if they weren't, putting on all these cards isn't necessarily giving us the kind of return. Like, one of the things they were doing was, they're saying we can go to these markets and we can kickstart them, you know, by being there. And that's true. They can. But even then, you have to kickstart and then you got to kind of occupy, right? Bam, you're there. And then you, you really need to have infrastructure there, not just a TV deal, but like infrastructure. You got to have shows there on a regular basis. So I think, more, I think, again, never been against international expansion. But I think that going to Mexico is one of those really smart, timely investments that Zufa is going to make. It's just so smart. They waited until there was they had they had enough of infiltration for best practices. Behind the scenes, they've been sending those guys to Jackson's and other camps to, camps to train them up. They got a massive TV deal. They got a heavyweight champion who speaks Spanish. They've got now Henry Cejudo. Um, now that he's a big star, but has the potential to be. They've got a regional scene going on in Mexico. It was like all the things were there in place for that to work. All of the pieces. But how do you do that in all these countries? Because Canada's not getting the same treatment anymore. And Singapore, I don't know what happened to that. They just ceded that territory to 1FC. Is there going to be another Japan show this year? Maybe, maybe not. Um, you know, when are they going to go to South Korea? Oh, by the way, Brazil needs tending to. And by the way, to do all these things, we have to get more and more guys to do it. And that lowers the quality of the product. And then it makes putting the you know a bunch of stuff on Fight Pass that's not worth the value. You get the idea. I'd rather they be on Fight Pass more infrequently, but with better cards than all the time with just fights that just simply are below the threshold. Let's see. Let's go to the Twitter machine. I haven't even touched that yet. All right. Sponsors should just pay fighters to get tattoos of their brands. No, 
that's a sad, sad uh, situation that we're in, if that's what we're asking people to do. Is Mighty Mouse more dominant in the 125-pound division than Ronda is at 135, considering the competition? Um, maybe. Maybe. Uh, who do you consider the most dominant athlete in sports today? I don't know. We can have that conversation, but I think that um, Jordan Burroughs is certainly on top of that list. You look, I mean, you're talking about national champion in college, U.S. Open champion, Pan Am champion, world champion, Olympic gold medalist. I think he's only, I think he's lost less than five times on the international stage, beaten almost, what, like a hundred? Close to that, something close to that, something insane. Maybe not that much, but certainly an insanely high number. And you're talking about against a worldwide sport that is, you know, the best Russians and Dagestanis in the world can't beat this guy centuries old traditions of this sport being passed down and passed down recruitment of the best athletes among a country of hundreds of, you know, uh, millions of people and they can't find one in that weight class to be Jordan Burroughs. You know, that's just not the same situation that we've got in the UFC right now in the women's bantamweight division, not even by a mile, like to get the kind of cartoonish dominance that Ronda enjoys is literally not possible is not possible in what Jordan Burroughs is doing. So that what he has, what he has, is a miracle. To me, it's not a miracle that that R- Rousey enjoys the success that she has. She's an elite athlete when the others are probably not, and she's an elite technician and the others are not. I think that if they brought over other elite women and other elite, uh, you know, both athletes and technicians, I think Rousey would probably still be better than them. I just think she's so psychotic about how competitive she is, right? I think she'd still be great, but you would see the dominance shrink like that. And that's fine because that's how it's supposed to be. That's how it is for everyone in elite sports worldwide. So it says Ed Ruth signing with Bellator due to being able to lock his own sponsors. Big deal or no? I think it is a big deal, you know, going out there and because he comes from wrestling where he's going to have his own sports and his, his own name. And um, I think um, his contemporary, um, what's, what sponsors does he have? I think he has Adidas. David Taylor might have Adidas. He certainly has like a headphone sponsor. He's got his own shoe, you know, uh, Kyle Dake, same kind of thing. Now Dake's not coming to MMA and neither is Taylor, but you get the idea like, they have they they bring in sponsors. They have popularity from another world, and so why shouldn't they be able to make money off of that? They should. They're bringing this thing to you. They're bringing this thing with them. That's how important they are. Um, and you could say, well, they can. They just can't have it for UFC Octagon stuff. Okay, but that's just sort of silly, right? Um, you know, you want these fighters to show up and fight on your show. Let them have a chance to do that. <clears throat> Someone asks, does the abuse Mark Hunt took underline a need for officials to be educated about the science of brain damage? Of course, but the issue is not whether they need to be educated. The issue is a guy like John Sharp knows about it. It's way more complicated. Guys, it's really easy to get these like caricature bad referees. Oh, Steve Mazzagatti is a terrible referee. Oh, Kim Winslow is a terrible referee, right? And then say, oh, well, if you just l- eliminate these guys and you just put in good referees, you get good decisions. Guys. Herb Dean has made some bad calls before. 
Big John has made some bad calls before. Even the best referees make really bad calls. It's just not possible to do that job well. I'm not saying that means we should forgive um, uh, Big John or, oh, it's no big deal that John Sharp let this go. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is the solution to that kind of thing is not obvious. It's just not obvious. Can UFC fighters complain about Reebok pay if none of them are talking about specific numbers they made before? It'd be nice if they made their details public. I don't know if that's the issue as much as, look, I think raising awareness is important. But raising awareness is one step towards action. And so while I am sympathetic to the act of raising awareness, uh, I am less sympathetic if that's all you plan to do. If there's more to the story, then I care a little bit more. says, your boy Royston Wee is back in action on Saturday, taking on Ning Guangzhou. How do you pronounce it? Guangzhou. Uh, who do you have in this one and how? I could not possibly care less. It's just so irrelevant to anything. Let's see. All right, let's go back. Oh, my God. Did you guys see the scenes outside the Bernabeu? Pretty amazing. All right. Let's see what else you got for me. Um, okay, so someone's asking how fewer uh, MMA, or excuse me, fewer UFC events would be better. Someone says they're open to the possibility uh, they could make fans more invested, make each f- event feel more special. However, I think there's a number of factors that would be problematic if the UFC severely reduced the number of UFC events per year. Okay, I'm not talking about a severe reduction, not in totality or not immediately. I am talking about a gradual tapering. I think that's what I'm talking about. That's what I would like to see. This is very simple to ask. How many shows can you really... Li- what portion of your product is the kind that is most non-replicable? Let's do that, plus a little extra on the side, some extra fat for finding prospects early who could develop, even if some of those guys are bad. Let's a little fat on that. How many shows can you realistically realistically do around that, including a burn rate with entries? That's how many shows you do. That's how you figure it out. That's how you figure it out. And if that makes the product smaller, I'm okay with that. I really am. Um, I'm sure UFC is not okay with that. They, 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 I think they, they feel like there's a different arrangement that's more in line with their corporate strategy, both for revenue and for what the sport's supposed to look like and their control over it. Um, but that's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in only as the, uh, and I think there's a, I think the market can respond to that to some degree as well, that if you just take what is non-replicable, add a little fat to it, take out what's not available given the burn rate, there's your product. How many shows can you do around that, you know? So it says, name a fighter in any weight class that has the best attribute for a specific area of MMA to make the ultimate fighter. Not like on the show, but like the ultimate fighter. Takedowns. Um, you know, Rousey might be on that list, but she has such a unique style of them that I will say, I don't know, man. Cormier, Jones, maybe Jones. Striking. Um, Prime Anderson Silva. 
clinch, maybe Cormier or Rousey. Chin, got to be like, you know, uh, let's see who the, you know, uh, Roy's been slept a couple times, but, man, Roy Nelson takes a hell of a shot, right? Power, Dos Santos has big power. Um, speed. Um, if you mean like explosive speed, like a prime Jacare is pretty explosive. If you mean like hand speed, you know, like Uriah Faber's got great hand speed. Jiu-Jitsu, who has the best MMA Jiu-Jitsu? Probably Jacare. Best game plans. Um, Dominic Cruz, for sure. Okay, true or false? Chael returns to compete in MMA after his ban is up. Probably false. Chael and Vanderlei will compete in some form of martial arts. Well, Chael already has. Bellator signs at least three top five UFC fighters before the end of the year. False. While Jones isn't competing, the light heavyweight title gets passed from fighter to fighter and not defended more than twice. That, I will say, is true. Bjorn Rebney comes back from Mexico by the end of 2015. Maybe. If Connor wins the belt, he becomes the UFC's biggest star in the next two years. Bigger than Rousey? I don't know, but he might be right up there. Certainly for the European efforts. Chad Mendez and Uriah Faber fight at featherweight in 2015. False. UFC won't grant Rampage his wish and will never fight any of the fighters he wants to avenge his losses to. I don't know if the court's going to let him, much less UFC. UFC, so false. UFC do more tough North America and call it quits. UFC do one more tough North America and call it quits, but continue international versions. Um, false, false, unfortunately. It's not any indictment on Rhonda. It's not any indictment on how little or big it is. It's just a very common thing to generate support. Trust me. It's not a big deal. It looks kind of funny, I admit, but it's not a big deal. Okay. Uh, if you have any additional questions, please email me at luke.thomas at espionation.com. Um, Barbas is over here sleeping. Barbas, he's sleeping. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. We'll have coverage of UFC Fight Night 66 and Bellator 137 this weekend, and, of course, a bunch of other stuff as well. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for watching. I very much appreciate it. Be sure to share this video, and until then, stay frosty.